0: you would, take your Bibles and, and turn with me to Acts chapter 23. We'll be in verses 12 through 35 this morning. I invite you to stand if you're able as we read this part of God's Word together. <coughs> Pay careful attention. This is God's Word. Acts chapter 23, beginning in verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly." And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And Desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's Praetorium. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this, your word. May it be a light unto our feet and a lamp to our path. Uh, May we see light in your light. Grant that your Holy Spirit might illumine our hearts to not only believe these things which are written, but to lay them up in our hearts and to practice them in our lives. And we pray that in all things we might see Jesus, for we pray in his name. Amen. How can we trust God when our circumstances leave us uh, so weary uh, that it's difficult to see past what's in front of us? How can we trust God when our circumstances feel so bad uh, that they almost seem to overwhelm even God's faithful promises? We begin to question his faithfulness what what can we do when life presses in uh, so hard upon us to squeeze us and we begin to wonder is God able to keep his promise to us is he willing to keep his promise to us in this passage that we 've read this morning uh, answer the answer to those questions is given to us somewhat indirectly uh, I say indirectly because we've we 've uh, In the verses before this, Jesus has come to Paul in a vision and he has told him uh, in chapter 23 verse 11, don't fear, take courage as you have testified before me in Jerusalem so you must also testify about me in Rome. Paul has received this promise from Jesus that he will be kept safe and brought to Rome so that there he might bear witness to the resurrection of Christ and the good news of the gospel. But now we come to this passage where that promise uh, seems to be kind of tested. There's a plot against Paul. There's, it's a serious plot. It's a significant plot to kill Paul, uh, which would prevent him, obviously, from making his way to Rome to carry out this plan that God has uh, set out for Paul. But in this passage, we're given this reminder indirectly, that God is over all things sovereign, working all things for good for his people, even those evil intentions and plots by those who would oppose God and his people, even over evil plots. And because God is sovereign over all things, therefore we can trust him. Now, the reason we say that this is indirectly Given to us as an answer is because you may notice in the episode that we've just read, there's no mention of God, Uh, his name is not mentioned, Jesus is not mentioned. Paul does not pause and pray when he hears of this plot from the 40 Jewish conspirators. There's no report of praise at the end of this episode. Many times you have something like this happen and God rescues somebody or he brings a resolution and then it says everybody was amazed, everybody <laughs> praised God. And you don't have any of those things given to us in this scene. And yet we're still to see, as Herman Boving says, this scripture shows us God in all of the works of his hands. John Calvin reminds us that Christ teaches us that all events are governed by God's secret plan and directed by his ever-present hand. So that even though his name is not mentioned, his fingerprints are all over this scene in Paul's life. This rescue is from God. Patrick Schreiner says this, If Acts is a song, the book of Acts is a song, then God the Father orchestrates all actions in Acts toward their pre-written and beautiful end. He has a plan, and it will be accomplished. That's the message we're to find from this uh, glorious rescue of Paul from the hands of these conspirators. God has a plan, and it will be accomplished, and nothing can thwart that plan. We see this in three, three points that we'll make through this passage. First, We see the evil plots of men, the evil plots of men. Second, we see the good providence of God, the good providence of God. And then third, we see the faith-based comfort of God's people, the faith-based comfort of God's people. Uh, First, let's look at the evil plots of men, the evil plots of men. Luke moves directly from this vision of Jesus to Paul to this evil plot that 40 Jewish conspirators make to kill Paul. Uh, Three things about this plot. One is it's a serious threat. Uh, It's no joke. Paul doesn't dismiss it. Uh, He acts quickly when he hears news of it, but it's a serious threat. Forty men have bound themselves together uh, to carry out this plot to take Paul's life. Uh, That's a serious threat. If 40 men bind themselves together, uh, they have some high chance of success. Not only are these 40 men bound together in this serious threat, but they've also brought in the religious leaders, the chief priests and the elders. They've gone to consult with them to kind of get them in on the plot. Uh, They've got to somehow bring Paul out of prison, have them come before him so that these 40 men can ambush Paul. It's a serious threat. It's also a committed threat. These men are committed to carrying out this plot. Three times Luke tells us that these men have bound themselves under an oath. Uh, Now that that phrase doesn't quite capture the significance of what these men have done. They make an oath. They say, uh, we're not going to eat or drink anything until we uh, kill Paul. And the language that Luke uses to describe this oath is literally something like this. That these men bound themselves under a curse that if they did not kill Paul, they would call down God's curse upon them. You're probably feeling the irony of that. We'll talk about it in a second. But it's a serious, committed threat. In essence, they're asking God to bless them if they succeed in murder. And they're committing themselves to be cursed by God, to be cast out of the synagogue, basically, to be cut off from God's people, uh, as they viewed it, from God's people, Israel, if they, are, if they fail in this plot to kill Paul. So it's a committed threat. They are committed to this, even so far as taking an oath to be cursed uh, and not to eat or drink until they kill Paul. And finally, we see that it's an evil threat. It's an evil threat. Uh, we should not Uh, move too quickly over that point, that this is an evil threat. They are plotting to murder Paul under the guise of religious devotion. It doesn't mention God when they talk about taking the oath, but it's implicit that this is an oath that they take before God. God, we're going to bind ourselves to murder this man. They viewed themselves as zealously carrying out an act of worship to God, that by killing Paul, they would be serving the Lord. Yet we see how presumptuous and how evil that is, uh, that they are vowing to break God's commandments and then to call down God's blessing upon them if they're successful in breaking his commandment by killing Paul. These evil plots are aimed, this evil plot is aimed in essence to overthrow God's plan as, as it's coming to a point in Paul himself. And this is a pattern that is throughout the scriptures where we see evil plots of men seeking to undermine God's good plans. It goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? God places Adam and Eve in uh, the place that he has made, a delightful place where they can live in harmony with God's presence. And he says, all of this is yours except for this one tree. Be fruitful, multiply, bring forth fruit from the earth. Uh, and live in harmony with me in this place. And Satan comes in, an evil plot, evil intentions. He tempts Eve, he tempts Adam. They are deceived. They eat from the fruit of the tree that God told them not to eat from, Uh, and sin and death enter into the world, an evil plot that aims to undermine God's good plan. We see this even further in the Bible through Pharaoh. God's people have made their way into Egypt, they are enslaved by Pharaoh after being there for some time. Uh, and God begins to multiply his people even under Pharaoh's uh, severe oppression. So the Pharaoh says, we'll, we'll just kill all the baby boys. We'll, we'll wipe out these people by killing any boy that is born by throwing him into the water to drown. We see this in the evil intentions against Joseph, one of Jacob's 12 sons, even before they get into Egypt, his other brothers plot against him. They sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt in prison for many years, evil intentions seeking to undermine God's plans. We see this even in David. God promised to David that David would be a king uh, and would have a son after him who would sit on his throne forever. And David has evil intentions in his own heart. He sees Bathsheba, commits adultery with her, murders her husband, lies about it, covers it up. And it seems like David has possibly disqualified himself uh, even before he has children who will succeed him in this promise of God. Or the birth of Jesus and Herod seeking to wipe out all the male children who would be around Jesus' age. And of course, even the cross itself. The evil intentions of men aimed against the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's anointed one, sending him to a cruel death on a cross. All throughout the scripture we see this pattern, evil plots seeking to undermine God's good plans. But we're reminded throughout scripture and here even in this episode of Paul's life that these plots cannot succeed, These plots cannot find success in stopping God's plans because God rules over all his creatures and all their actions. In this passage, we're reminded that God works actively in the world by what we call his providence. The Westminster Shorter Catechism describes providence as God's uh, wise and powerful, holy, wise and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, and all their actions, that God rules over everything in the world, not just simply allowing certain things to happen, but in fact actively ordering everything that comes to pass so that everything that unfolds in human history is a result of God's plan, and he brings it all to a point in his purposes and for his glory. God crosses here in this passage the purposes of the wicked, by his own providence through unimpressive-looking means. Notice how God's providence is at work. There's a plot, this evil plot, but God crosses the plans of the wicked, and he does it in an unimpressive way. Uh, Notice verse 16. All of a sudden, we're told that Paul has a nephew in Jerusalem. There's been no mention of Paul's sister. There's been no mention of Paul's nephew. There's been no mention of Paul's family relationships in Jerusalem, but it just so happens that Paul has a nephew in Jerusalem. And it just so happens that this nephew has somehow heard about this plot. I guess it's hard for 40 men to keep a secret. This nephew has heard the plot, and it just so happens that he has access to Paul in prison where he's able to go and tell Paul of this plot that's been made against him to take his life and the men who have made this oath to do so. Of course, we're being somewhat tongue-in-cheek here. There's no accident. There's no uh, uh, surprise in God's plan. Uh, This is not just simply happenstance. God is actively ordering all things to carry out his purpose. Paul has been given very specific, very direct revelation from Jesus. You're going to Rome. And yet this plot comes up, and you can imagine he's wondering, how am I going to get to Rome with this plot that's happening? But God is providentially working to carry out his purposes in Paul's life, so much so that God uses not only uh, a nephew, we don't hear anything else about the nephew after this, uses a nephew of Paul, apparently a young man, to expose this plot. He uses now for the third time uh, a a Roman commander who would have been in charge of thousands of troops there in Jerusalem, but who... Uh, is used by God to protect and preserve Paul from danger now on this third occasion. Not only that, he uses two centurions, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to safely guide Paul out of Jerusalem to Antipatris and then to Caesarea where he is entrusted into the care of the governor of that area. We see the good providence of God. Just like in the story of Esther, where God's name is not mentioned at all in the whole book, and yet his fingerprints are all over the whole scene, the whole story. God's hand is actively at work here, his ever-present hand, directing his plans, directing his creatures and all their actions to carry out his purposes. And so we see not only the evil plots of men aiming to undermine God's purposes, but we see the good providence of God preserving his purposes, not being overthrown even by the evil intentions of men. We see that this results finally in the faith-based comfort of God's people, the faith-based comfort of God's people. I think it's worth pointing out here uh, what Paul does and what Paul doesn't do in this episode. And maybe we shouldn't lean too heavily on this, but I think it's worth noting when Paul gets news of this, He acts quickly and decisively, and he acts in faith. He doesn't flail about in despair, wondering what's going to happen. He doesn't go to a dark place wondering, how will God care for me in the midst of this? He trusts that God has promised to him that he will go to Rome, and he believes that God is true in his promises. He has a peace. He has comfort because God has given him this promise, and so... He's able to have peace and patience through this adversity. Uh, let me just kind of make application by way of, of, of three things that we see in Paul's own response to this situation. One, and this kind of has two parts to it, Paul leaned upon what God had previously revealed to him. He leaned upon God's revelation and God's promises. As we said, Paul had a very specific Very direct promise: You're going to Rome, and Paul could lean back on that. We don't have promises, perhaps, that specific to our lives and our circumstances. And we often used to uh, talk in college about how how do I know who I'm supposed to marry when the Bible doesn't give some specific instruction? Dave, you're supposed to marry Carly, but it gives guidelines, it gives principles. This is the type of person you're supposed to marry, and once you make that promise, you keep that promise, and that's how you know. God's will for your life. We're not given specific directions in the same way that Paul was given this specific revelation. You're going to Rome. Don't fear. Take courage. But what we're given is enough for us to know that God will care for us. John Calvin, in his section on the providence of God and the institutes of the Christian religion, uh, says this There are very many and very clear promises that testify. That God's singular providence watches over the welfare of believers. And he has a whole paragraph of promises from Scripture. Like Psalm 55:22, Cast your care upon the Lord and he will nourish you and will never permit the righteous man to flounder. Or 1 Peter 5, 7, the New Testament counterpart to that. Cast your cares upon the Lord for he cares for you. Psalm 91, he who dwells in the help of the Most High will abide in the protection of the God of heaven. Genesis 15, 1, I will be your shield. Jeremiah 118, a brazen wall. I will contend with those who contend with you. Isaiah 49, even though a mother may forget her children, yet I will not forget you. Indeed, Calvin says, the principal purpose of biblical history is to teach that the Lord watches over the ways of the saints with such great diligence, they do not even stumble over a stone. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way in kind of very warm tones. The Heidelberg Catechism asks this question, what do you understand by the providence of God? And the answer given is this, providence is the almighty and present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures. And so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. You see, the doctrine of providence is not kind of a bare, abstract doctrine, uh, many times we respond to this doctrine in kind of a fatalistic way, and we adopt more of an Islamic view of God than a Christian view of God. Uh, Muslims don't believe that God is personal in the same way that Christians do, and so his plan cannot be personal. His plan is fatalistic. It's more, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a fate that's kind of uh, lacks the personal nature that the God of the Bible does. And so people will often say, I mean, I, I've said this, I hear lots of Christians say about their circumstances, it is what it is, which is a variation on that old song, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. But think about what that's communicating about our view of God and our view of his plan. Part of what that's saying is there's, there's no personal design behind this. It just is. And whatever it is, that's what it is. But the Bible teaches us a different message. Scripture teaches us whatever is, is because your father has planned it this way. Because the God who made all things is your heavenly father through Jesus Christ, his son. And he is the God who orders all things, who works all things together for your good. He has personal design and intentions in all of his plans So that whatever is, is because God himself, our Father, has planned it. And so in many ways, this is the second point of application, we're not to see the doctrine of providence in a fatalistic way, like, well, you know, God said Paul was going to make it to Rome, and so Paul didn't have to worry about things, and life was all fine and dandy. What we're to see in God's providence is that the God of the universe has an affectionate heart towards his people. That this is Jesus' way of saying to Paul and to us, I am your shepherd. I am, I am leading you. The hired hand has run away because the wolf has come and there is danger, but I am the good shepherd. I've laid down my life for you. I've taken my life up again in resurrection, and I hold you in my hands as a precious gift that the Father has given to me, and nothing can snatch you out of my hand. Providence is a function of God's love, of His affection his deep love and care for his children. And we're to see it that way as the Heidelberg Catechism reminds us that all things come to us not by chance, not by fate. It is what it is. No, your father, your father has directed these things this way for your good. And you can trust his fatherly hand. Herman Bavink, uh connects these same ideas when he talks about the doctrine of providence and our need to see these things in light of who God is as our Father. He says this, speaking of pagans who viewed the universe as maintained by God in a kind of fatalistic way, he says, none of them knew the confession of the Christian that this God who maintains and governs all things is his God and his Father for Christ his Son's sake. Or later, he says this, many will look at their circumstances when they get difficult and they'll deny God's existence or deny God's goodness. But Bobing says the Christian who has experienced the love of God and the forgiveness of sins and the redemption of his soul is sure to boast with the Apostle Paul that neither tribulation nor distress nor persecution nor famine nor nakedness nor peril nor sword shall separate him from that love. If God be for us, who can be against us? The doctrine of providence is the doctrine of God's affectionate, powerful, almighty care for his beloved children. And so we can sing, uh, as we've done this morning already, and as we'll sing again in the final hymn, but we can sing, The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need his power is displayed. To this I hold. My shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. In God's doctrine of providence, we find comfort because God is our Father through Jesus, our Savior. And so we're called As we think about these things, we're called to view all of life, all of life. Every event, every circumstance, every moment, we're called to view all of life through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Paul did not need to fear 40 men who had placed themselves under a curse to kill him because he knew the one who would become a curse for him. He knew the one who had conquered the curse in his own dying at the cross and rose again from the dead as the victor over the the only thing that could separate us from God, unforgiven sin. Paul knew the faithful love of Jesus who had been betrayed and, in a sense, ambushed by people with evil intentions, handed over to the Roman authorities who had submitted himself to be obedient to God all the way to death, even death on a cross, and was raised on the third day in glorious triumph over sin, over Satan, over all that stands against us. Paul did not need to fear 40 men under a curse because Jesus had risen from the dead and was indeed his Savior. And is not the cross and the resurrection The ultimate proof of God's all-powerful providence that not even the worst event in human history, the crucifixion of the Son of God, can overcome God's plan, but indeed is part of his orchestrated plan, his predetermined plan to bring salvation, to bring forgiveness. Satan did not take Jesus and put him on a cross. God gave him. Your father gave his son in love. That we might be forgiven and be welcomed to Him and have that assurance that God causes all things to work together for our good. Friends, we may not know the end from the beginning in whatever circumstance we face. In a room this size, uh, there are many situations that you're facing where you're looking at it and you're wondering, what will God do? How will this be resolved? How can I trust his promises when I see the things that are in front of me? What will bring relief from that? We may not be able to see the end from the beginning of our situation, but we can see the empty tomb after the cross and know that whatever it is that we're facing now, God intends good, and he is able He is able, because that is his purpose, to bring good out of even the worst of situations. And so in this story, we're called to have hope. We're called to have confidence that God has revealed himself in his word, and those promises are for us. We're called to see God's providence as the fruit of his affectionate heart for his people, that your shepherd will defend you. He will not leave you. And we're called to view all of life through the cross and the resurrection Neither to give ourselves to despair in the situations we face, uh, nor to simply ignore them. But the cross and the resurrection teach us that we can weep at what's wrong with the world and in our lives while believing at the same time that God is at work bringing good from evil. And the only way to do that, the only way to believe that and to find the hope that anchors our hearts in those situations is to look to the cross to look to the resurrection as the answer, as God's answer to the cross, and then through that lens to look at our own lives so that the the questions we begin to ask change. No longer asking, God, where are you? Uh, Are you even there? Are you able to keep your promises, but rather to begin to ask, God, how are you teaching me to trust you? How are you, through this, making me more like your beloved son, the Lord Jesus? How are you stripping me from the things that I have put my trust in, that are false hopes? How are you teaching me to trust in your promises, which are true and unfailing hopes? You know, we talked about the pattern in the scripture of evil plots seeking to undermine God's good plans. In every single one of those examples, the garden, Joseph, Pharaoh, David, Herod, the cross itself again and again and again, and even throughout the history of the church and even throughout your lives, we see God's triumphant answer in the midst of those circumstances. And it all comes to a point in the resurrection of Jesus. The worst of all sins was answered with the greatest of good news. Christ is risen and therefore we have hope. And so as we face even the things like Paul faced, uh, affliction, and trying to reconcile those with God's promises and see God's purposes in them, let us look to the cross. God may move in mysterious ways, but the things that he has made clear are for us to give us hope through Christ, through his cross and resurrection. May we find it there. Would you pray with me?